Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. With me today is David Stahl, the author of Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East, published just this year by Cambridge University Press. Thanks for joining me today, David. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be involved in this project, uh, what, your, what your background is. Uh, well, uh, I was born in New Zealand and uh, I moved over there with the family when uh, I was very small. So I grew up in Australia and I, although I have a New Zealand passport, New Zealand citizenship, I've always sort of considered myself to be an Australian. Um, went to Monash University in, in Melbourne, uh, did my undergraduate there. We have a, a slightly different system in Australia. We have uh, an honours year. So after the undergraduate, we have an honours year and then we go into the master. So I did my my honours dissertation at Monash, at, at Monash with uh, Eleanor Hancock, who I guess was probably my my first real mentor in uh, in history, and it was her idea really to, you know, say, look, if you want to pursue doing German history, you've really got to get out of Australia, which is uh, in- unfortunate, but uh, in the end, looking back, it was definitely the best thing for me. And uh, went from Monash to King's College in London, where they have a department for war studies. Uh, did my MA there. Um, and again, I think that was another big step in not just doing a master's, of course, for all the, all the value <coughs> inherent in that, but really specializing for the first time in, in sort of military theory and, uh, you know, looking at Clausewitz and a lot of these things and being able to contextualize a lot of the things that I've been reading um, in the previous years. Um, from there, uh, basically decided that it was a good time to go to Germany and uh, start learning German. I uh, wasn't 100% sure that I was going to do a PhD at that point, but that just sort of fell into place. Germany is a great place for studies. It uh, might be a, a remarkable thing for a lot of the uh, American audience, but it's actually free to study here, So um, even for a foreigner, which is quite intriguing. But uh, yeah, at that time, I just thought... Uh, why not? If there's a, if I'm specialising in German history and there's a, an opportunity to do it here for free, as well as the fact that you know it's just good for the language training and, and the archives are here. Found a, a professor in uh, in Potsdam uh, who's at the Humboldt University here in Berlin, but he has uh, he's, he's been specialising in this for a long time. It's Professor Rolf Dieter Muller, um, and he was really another one of the, the sort of towering mentors I had. Uh, he's a very well read and and a lot of the ideas that uh, I was sort of bouncing around at the beginning like a lot of PhD students wondering you know should I take it in this direction or in this direction is this even a feasible project of course I hadn't had a chance to look at any of the archival information I just had an idea if I was going to go down this road of looking at the eastern front uh, you know you don't have that much uh, ability to sort of contextualize what you're going to do because there isn't really that much written in the English-speaking world I mean you can look at a, a Google search and see lots of books, but what you don't have is a lot of specialized studies. And that's really what I was looking at writing. Um, and he was able to provide a lot of ideas for what would work and what wouldn't work. And when I came up with the idea of looking at Barbarossa and uh, suggested to him that my reading between the lines is that it was in a lot more trouble early on than I think most histories have uh, hitherto recorded, 
he was able to say, yeah, that was very much his idea. But interestingly enough, he said, uh, but no one would ever write that. And I, I sort of thought, what do you mean no one would ever write that? And, and, and that was really the beginning of another whole element of my education here in Germany beyond the, the operation history and uh, operational history and, and, and pursuing a, a PhD was this whole idea of just how and what context is, is World War II history viewed in Germany. And uh, what he basically meant by that is no one in the, in the university system here really does operational history. Military history is, you can say, quite taboo. Um, and so it's, a, I think, an interesting topic for me. But more importantly, there was a, a real, you know, there was a, you know, 70 years there hadn't been um, anyone in Germany already working on this topic. And so it felt like, you know, the one thing that PhD students are looking for, which is, you know, I want to I make a contribution. I want to be able to say something. Uh, and, and, you know, the more macro that is, the better. Um, and then as I got into the archives, you know, a year or two down the track, I realized, wow, just how much information there is in the archive that supports this, this thesis. It wasn't a question of, um, you know, as I went in there, wondering just how much can I find that's going to, you know, bear this out. Uh, and as in, I'm sure we'll discover as we get into it, there's uh, an enormous amount of information that points to operational problems uh, for the Wehrmacht in, in 1941. Well, and, and we'll get to lots of this later on, but it is, I think what's important about the book is that it does kind of shake up this narrative that for, um, you're right in the sense that the scholarship is surprisingly thin on this kind of a subject, and yet we we feel like we know exactly what happened, right? That there, the initial tremendous German successes were followed by the turning point of Stalingrad, and then a and then a kind of denouement, as it or well, I guess I don't know if you refer to the um, 1944 campaigns in that in those terms, but you know mm. we had this kind of settled narrative, and you and to my mind, using using sources that we've known about, I mean Halder's diaries and things like that, have really shaken that up. So how do you, how did you go about doing that? What's, can you spell out your thesis for us? Well, I think the, um, I think as you say, I mean, Helder's diary and things that we have access to in the English speaking world, uh, you know, there is a translation of this and so you can read these things. And I think that's probably where I started with this reading between the lines. I mean, I was able to access some of this information and enough to get the idea reading. I mean, very much as a, as an undergraduate initially, and thinking to myself, there's a, it seems to be a bit of a dichotomy in the, in the whole history of Barbarossa. On the one hand, it's very clear from the planning stages that they're looking at an operation that's going to run for six to ten weeks, depends on whose operational study you're reading. But that's the general idea. And at the same time, then, you read these operational accounts that are typically fairly uh, uh, yeah, successful. I mean, the Germans seem to be doing very well. They're you know capturing hundreds of thousands of troops in there. And they're destroying vast amounts of Soviet equipment. But the one thing that's just not happening in these accounts is in this initial eight to 10 weeks is that they're not actually achieving the one thing that Germany must achieve in 1941 and in this summer campaign, and that is the destruction of the Soviet Union. So on the one hand, they're having a lot of success, but it's not success that's leading to this ultimate goal. And in fact, no matter how far down the road you get, you know, 12 weeks into the campaign, 15 weeks into the campaign, they're still seemingly doing well uh, by classical indicators but ultimately not achieving what they have to achieve in order to uh, crush the Soviet Union. And I guess that was the starting point. And then when I went into the archives, uh, it was really a, a question of sort of breaking it down. I mean, how do you work with this? How do you, how do you really do this? Because if there's another thing that, that comes out very much, I think, in the, in the years I've spent working on Barbarossa is, uh, is the scale of this whole war. I mean, the war is on such a, a scale that, you know, you've literally got three million, or in excess of three million men in the German army, uh, 
driving into the Soviet Union. And, you know, when you get into the archives, there's a vast number of files for these, you know, 155 German divisions. So where do you start? And I think you have to, in order to make it a, a manageable work, you have to limit it somewhat. And so the obvious choice for me was to look at uh, the panzer groups. There are four panzer groups on the Eastern Front in 1941. There was one in Army Group North, two in Army Group Center, and one in Army Group South. And the two in Army Group Center are the largest two. Uh, they're about a third bigger than the other ones. And I thought, well, if you're looking at what, what is what we classically refer to as Blitzkrieg, it really is enacted through these panzer groups, and they're, they're very much separate from the, the armies, the classic sort of infantry armies that uh, make up the rest of the Wehrmacht. And so I, I decided to look at Panzer Group 2 and Panzer Group 3, that's Hermann Hortz and, and Heinz Guderian's Panzer Groups, and uh, then started to break them down, look at, you know, how do they function, how do they operate, what do they do? Uh, and it became clear I had to look at logistics and I had to look at, uh, obviously, the, uh, the command diaries and, and try and get a sense of uh, how their operations are proceeding. And I think that's what shocked me is, um, I mean, I had the sense that there was a lot more difficulties going on there than, than, than we'd seen hitherto in, in, in various uh, studies. But, um, but for example, in, in the 7th Panzer Division, uh, I think it's six days into the war on the 28th of June, uh, they have reported uh, losses among their Mark III and Mark IV panzers. That's the, that's the best the Germans have at that point, um, of 50% for the Mark III's and 75% for the Mark IV's six days into the campaign. Now, that's uh, quite an astonishing figure. And trying to account for that, you know, you're reading further and you're looking into what is this, you know, how could they have lost so many tanks? And, of course, uh, you know, they haven't lost them because the Soviets have destroyed them, not at all. They've actually lost only a very small number to um, what they call total losses, uh, destroyed tanks as such. But actually, it's just this process of operating in the east. So if you start looking at uh, the fact that these tanks are obviously going overland, that the, the land is uh, in some cases marshy where the 3rd Panzer Group is operating, or more, more particularly the 7th Panzer Division, uh, it's marshy or it's forested or it's uh, just very bad roads and an enormous amount of uh, dust are on these roads. And this is being kicked up by the, the panzers as they're, as they're moving along. They're moving in large columns. So, you know, in some of the, the, the diaries you read and so on, they, they talk about these clouds of dust that they're moving in that are so thick you can hardly see the tank in front of you. And then you start looking further and you start to think, well, what sort of an air filter does a tank from Central Europe actually have, and you start to realize that these air filters are uh, completely inadequate to cope with this amount of dust, and the dust is getting into the engines, and that accounts for uh, a huge spike in oil consumption. They need more oil. They've got to flush this system out. They don't have enough oil, but they've got operational objectives, and they're driving on toward them, so they just keep going day after day, driving in these conditions, and in the process, ruining their engines. Um, and you know, they've got to get these supplies or these spare parts to the front in order to, uh, keep the tanks going. And, and I mean, most of those, those losses can be repaired and most of those tanks will be back on the road again. Uh, many, and I think only a few hours or days, but as the campaign goes on, this is a cumulative thing. You, you, they start to run out of spare parts. They start to get further and further into the Soviet Union. It's an expanding funnel, this, this geography of the, the Soviet Union. So you start to have tanks broken down in all different areas uh, spread out. And their ability, their capacity to repair these tanks on the, the campaign is nowhere near as well developed as it will be you know, later in the war. And their previous experience has always been with these shorter blitzkrieg campaigns in the Balkans or in France, obviously, um, Poland, 
has been to win the campaign. And then at the end, you go around and you pick up all your tanks and you bring them back to factories where they're repaired. There isn't this idea of having uh, quite the developed system in the East to to centralize this process. And that's what they're going to have to do as, as Barbarossa is going on, because it's not ending after six weeks or after 10 weeks. It's going on and it's going further and further and further. And the front is is uh, is much wider as they continue to advance in. Um, and you just get a sense when you start to follow this through, you know, it isn't just the 7th Panzer Division. That's just a good example. But, uh, for example, by the end of July, the, the uh, Panzer Group 2, that's Guderian's Panzer Group, uh, it started the war with 953 tanks and it has 287 um, uh, by the 29th of July. So, you know, we're, we're sort of five weeks down the track and, you know, you've also read these histories which have told you how successful the Germans are. And, you know, on the one hand, that's, that, that's not incorrect. You know, you can, you can look at a lot of those classical indicators, how far have they advanced and how many Soviet men have they taken as prisoners and how many tanks have they destroyed. All those things seem to check, check, uh, check the boxes for a successful operation. Um, but it's when you start to look at these figures, you start to see, okay, but the other question we've got to ask, and I don't know if we have been asking it, is, what have these victories been costing the German army? Because if if it's true that they've got to conquer the Soviet Union in 1941, if that is the one thing that they must do, they must achieve, and they're not going to be able to do it because of what it's cost them to win the Battle of Minsk or the Battle of Smolensk, then, then you've got a problem there. Because long-term, the Soviet Union is far better placed to sustain a long, grinding, attritional war than the German Wehrmacht. Uh, and... Uh, and that is the, basically the crux of it. I mean, that's we're looking at it through the prism of the Panzer groups, but of course the book also deals with the Luftwaffe to some extent, deals with the infantry armies, deals with the command crisis, deals with a lot of other facets. And the basic uh, end result of so much of this is unless the German army can indeed find a way to end this war, which by the end, and basically what I argue, by the end of the Battle of Smolensk, um, which is early August, uh, there is no conclusion. They've already launched two tremendous uh, battles of encirclement, first one at Minsk, second one at Smolensk. They've crushed large numbers of Soviet armies. They're standing there exhausted at the end of the second one, and there is still a Soviet front opposing them with large numbers of armies. And not only is it there, but, and this is another part that hasn't really featured, I think, so much in English historiography, well, with the exception of, uh, of David Glantz's um, Barbarossity Railed, which has just come out, or, uh, the first volume came out uh, I think year last year, and the second one is due out, I think, next year. Um, but that's really the first book in English that's really highlighted just how intense the Soviet counteroffensives are in the central part, on the central part of the front in August and September. And these are a, a tremendous uh, number of divisions being thrown at the German lines, and they're not being thrown at the German lines uh, in the way that uh, we see offensives from the Germans, where there's deep envelopments and all this sort of thing. But what's happening in those areas, and there are a lot of nameless battles that we've never heard of and probably never will hear of, because it's German infantry divisions stretched out on some part of the, the, the Soviet front, and they're dealing with this, and they are only giving ground to the point of, you know, three or four kilometers. So it doesn't seem to be, it doesn't affect the maps as we look at them, um, but uh, they're having a tremendous effect uh, on these German infantry divisions in terms of just how much uh, casualties they're causing. Um, and I... I there's so, I mean, there's so many things to grapple with right there, but, um, and it's not just that they're causing casualties, but they're because of the distances and the failure of the infantry to keep up. You're, you make the point that they're causing casualties or causing damage, preventing the refitting of the, the offensive spearheads, these panzer, these panzer groups, panzer divisions, 
that are going to be required to do the next phase that the Germans never pull them back and fix the engines and so forth because the Soviets are constantly pushing in these costly battles. Exactly. That's exactly what's going on because there is this discussion. I mean, the Germans are aware of what's going on. They're looking at their panzer divisions and they're saying, wow, this is, uh, this is, uh, much worse than, than, uh, than we thought. And we need to have uh, an operational level of X amount. Um, and they, they have discussions. Hitler even is, uh, visiting in early August, uh, army group center. And, uh, there is from, um, from Herman Hort and from Guderian, a very clear, uh, directive, we must have X amount of engines. I think it's in the order of 300, and Hitler agrees to release them. Part of his problem is he's keeping a lot of this stuff in Germany because he's foreseeing uh, post-Barbarossa new campaigns into Iran and who knows where else. And so he wants to keep all of the new production in Germany so that once Barbarossa has ended and he realizes that there are losses, he's still got this ability to then project or to, 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 to take those men back and put them into new, newly equipped divisions um, for new operations. And he doesn't want to give them out piecemeal to the Eastern Front. And he agrees there to give 300 engines, but 300 engines uh, is, I think, his figure for the whole of the Eastern Front, if I remember correctly. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, you could say, a drop in the ocean because the, I mean, if you're looking at 950 German tanks in, in Panzer Group 2, there's only one of four on the Eastern Front. Um, and 300 by early August is, uh, is simply not enough. Um, and then they have this problem, of course. They've, they've got this period, this so-called sort of rest period, but it's really not a rest period. A lot of authors have also understood that this, you know, this autumn, this, sorry, this August pause as being the, the big mistake that Germany made. They shouldn't have paused. They should have continued on. But, of course, the German panzer divisions were one facet of this. They, they, they simply couldn't go on. They needed to rest and refit, and they couldn't. That was your, your point, and you were right to make it, that as these as the Soviet offensive is, is hitting them so hard, they're constantly being called back into the line. They're po- trying to pull them out to rest them, but they've got the problem of we don't have enough spare parts for a lot of this, so they're cannibalizing tanks in order to get as many of them uh, operational as possible, but they're also having to go back into the, into the front lines uh, in order to shore up uh, the various infantry divisions that are threatening to buckle. And, uh, you know, I think some of the quotes that are coming out of Army Group Center's war diary are really quite astonishing that you you see just how much of a crisis they're in, that you've got Halder on the phone to Bock, uh, the commander of uh, Army Group Center, and, 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 and both of them are talking in, in the most dire terms about the situation. It just doesn't fit with our usual understanding of the summer period of Germany being so successful. Both of these men at points are really standing there thinking, my God, I, know, I don't know what we can do anymore. We can't really move forward and we can't hold our current positions. It looks like the Soviets have so much strength, um, which they do. Um, there's no question they do. And it's, a, it's really going to be a problem as they continue on because we, we focus on the next phase of the campaign. If you, know, if you look at the, the traditional narrative that goes down to Kiev, but it's not to say in all of these large areas of the front that everything's going well. These German infantry divisions, it cannot be emphasized enough, are really suffering. Well, one of the points you make that I don't recall hearing before, mm. um, though it, it makes it very convincing, is uh, concerns the Luftwaffe. So the initial story is, of course, that the Luftwaffe destroys the Soviet Air Force and, and achieves superiority. But you make the point that the front is so huge that the Soviets are able to achieve, um, to, to conduct operations almost at will in the many, many places where the Luftwaffe is not. Yeah, sure. Well, I think one of the other things to be understood about uh, the resilience of the Red Army is uh, the Red Army, you know, I'm not sure how many other armies do this, but uh, it's certainly something that I, I've read quite a few times about the Red Army is that they didn't throw anything away. That, you know, when they built planes in the, in the 1920s, 
uh, you can still find them uh, in 1941 as part of their order of battle in some regiment somewhere, the air regiment somewhere. And, and, and I think that's, that says two things to me that, that says on the one hand, when we're reading about Barbarossa and we're reading these fantastic figures of destroyed tanks and destroyed aircraft, the truth is not much could have been expected of a lot of these, these things. So it sounds like the Germans are, are dominating and destroying everything. And indeed they are. There's no question that they're doing very well in, in these classical indicators, but uh, you know, it's a point that becomes back to a lot of the Soviet um, um, equipment that it simply was antiquated and, it, and, it, and it not much could have been expected of it. That's true. Definitely of the, the aircraft. I mean, even if you look at what survives Barbarossa, what the, the, the so-called night, which is a flying and, you know, they're these PO2 uh, bombers that are made out of uh, canvas and plywood and they're open cockpits. And I mean, these things can't have been developed before the 1930s. Um, and so the Soviets have still got this stuff and they still use it to the best of their ability. But a lot of these planes that are being destroyed, that is the, 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 the thing you read very often about the Luftwaffe that they dominate and they destroy, I think it's something in the order of, you know, 3,000, 4,000 planes in the first week of the, the campaign. But it's two things. One, those planes that are being destroyed are for the most part not the best in the Soviet arsenal. And the other part is, I'm not exactly sure of the figure, but it, it, I think it's from memory, it's 15,000 is the, is the number of Soviet planes they have at the start of Barbarossa. So there's still a very large number of Soviet planes deep in the Soviet Union because the Soviet forces are echelon. There's a first strategic echelon, a, a second strategic echelon, which is quite a way back. Uh, it's behind Minsk that it's basically forming up. And there's a third strategic echelon. This is part of the reason why when they're biting so deep into the Soviet Union, they're not destroying the Soviet army as planned because the Soviet army forms up and, and is also is obviously units coming from other parts of the Soviet Union, but they're mostly coming from this, uh, from, from the raising of, 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 of reserves and they form up in different parts of the Soviet Union, which makes sense. Um, but it means you can't destroy it, uh, in one big border battle as, as the Germans thought they could. Um, but it also means that a lot of this equipment is then arriving only, uh, piecemeal, uh, some weeks or months into the campaign. And so the Germans are constantly having to deal with it. And the flip side to that is the Soviet production, even in 1941, for uh, tanks, for aircraft, for, artil for artillery, these are all higher, actually, than, uh, than the Germans. So new production for an attritional war, which is what it very quickly becomes, is actually in favor of the Soviets, even as early as 1941. Um, and one other thing that uh, a big part of the book that we haven't talked about yet is the, the fact that these these problems that the Germans are facing in July and August are, uh, of course, point backwards to the planning phase when the, the many sort of delusions and the, the double games that the, that were being played inside Germany itself mm. um, kind of presage this, this failure in a way. I mean, you set yeah. a date in, in August at which point, you know, Barbarossa has failed, but I think there's plenty of evidence it fails in, you know, 1940. Yeah, no, no, that's very true. I mean, I think there's, you know, a lot of, schools of thought on just exactly when does it fail or how do you prove these things and picking any one date is a little bit arbitrary. Uh, and, and I think there's, there's a lot to be said for just in terms of what the Germans were planning and how, you know, unfeasible this is, is, you know, this is just not going to, this is not going to work out the way that they want to work out. But I think what you do need is you need a test case. You do need to have a period to look at how all of this 
falls together. I mean, if you tried to argue that the, the Germans were going to lose in the Second World War or, or fail in the East or whatever you want to say uh, before Barbarossa is launched, you know, it's it's still hypothetical. You haven't actually have anything to, to, to prove all of these assumptions about what the Soviet Union is and indeed how robust it is. I mean, that's one of the, the remarkable things of the 1941 campaign is as much and all as I focus on the Wehrmacht and, and, uh, and, and all of that, if you look at the Red Army, uh, it, it is astonishing really what they do achieve and just how many losses they have and that ability to reconstitute the front time and again and to not just manage to, to put soldiers in uniforms, but to go on and fight against this German Wehrmacht. Um, and I think it's, that's, the, that's really the key. That's why I wanted to focus on these uh, panzer groups, because when you can prove that the panzer groups are in trouble, once you get down to the infantry, the infantry is something completely different. I mean, the Germans are very well trained tactically, there's no question, and they have, they have good infantry weapons and so on. But they haven't got this operational edge. This idea of Blitzkrieg has sort of bypassed the, the German infantry to no small extent. You end up then having uh, a, a Soviet infantry division and a German infantry division, and it's very hard, I think, outside of this sort of attritional World War One style, and there's many references in the 1941 campaign from uh, the infantry commanders about their older hands saying, God, this is exactly what we experienced in First World War. You know, we've got the, the Soviets over there with a tremendous amount of artillery. They're shelling us. We uh, dig down as quickly as we can because that's the best protection against it. The Germans also didn't have enough artillery, and they noticed this was the this idea of counter-battery was, was a big problem for them, so they, they dug down. And when the Soviets attacked and took their forward trench lines, they had to push them out of this. And this is where the soldiers are starting to conclude, wow, we're right back where we were, you know, 20 years ago. Um, which is not the story of 1941, and it's not the story of, 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 of uh, in many ways, the German army in World War II, but it is the story of a, of a very large, in fact, a, the bulk of uh, German soldiers experiencing World War II in the East. They're, they're in positional warfare even only weeks into Barbarossa. It just depends on which part of the front you're looking at. Of course, there's also a long period for the German infantry of, of marching. That's the, you know, the whole German front is moving east initially, but very quickly it starts to starts to, to settle down and those panzer groups can only be employed on some areas of the front and this is the problem that they face and it's uh you know in some ways you could say also that the, the key to looking at barbarossa is to look at the infantry since that's the, the majority of people who have experienced this war and if you look at that then you do start to see just how difficult it is i mean half a million casualties by the september 1941 uh, speaks volumes about the kinds of problems that germany is having uh in fighting this war I want to return to the, the planning phase for just a second, oh, yeah, because yeah. one of the other classic stories um, that we tell about the war in the East is, you know, that Hitler's intervention um, as the as Army Group Center is approaching Moscow to divert the, the panzers, right, to mm. for the encirclement of Kiev and so forth. And, the you know, the implications of this decision for the future are always uh, you know, um, debated back and forth. But mm. you, you set this up sort of nicely, not, you know, in other words, it's a predictable crisis because this was a a decision that was debated in during the planning phase that was kind of intentionally, as, as you tell it, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's in, it's intentionally kind of um, plowed under by, by Halder. It's avoided because he, he wants to avoid this decision. And so Absolutely. both sides, both, both Hitler and the army command seem to be, think that everything is going their way. Yeah. Um, and then when the, when the crisis, the so-called crisis cr comes, it's, it's pretty predictable. Yeah, no, definitely. You're absolutely right. I, I mean, at, at the end of the day, uh, I think everyone in the German army or in the German command, I should say, is is banking on this being 
a fantastic success. It's the only explanation for the the uh, the ability of these men, trained professionals, this whole aura of the German general staff being so professional, being able to simply uh, ignore so many of the what we would have said are obvious problems of this campaign is the idea that you know the Soviet army performed so badly against the Finnish in the Winter War and and they didn't have very much success taking their side of Poland when they invaded and of course you know they, they, their only claim to fame was beating the Japanese which the Germans didn't really hold uh, as being uh, terribly significant and so you've got this background for the Red Army. And the German Wehrmacht, which has conquered France in six weeks uh, and done all the things that it has done, is simply going to wash over them. And this is there's no question of this. So although there are there are differences of opinion in the German command about what the actual Barbarossa plan will be, and, and more, more more specifically, what's going to happen with Army Group Center in the second phase of the campaign. The first phase, everyone agrees on these German Panzer groups will drive in. They will enact an, an encirclement in in uh, in Belarus, what we call the Battle of Minsk, but it's really the Battle of Belarus in many ways. It's it's uh, it's uh, such a, a large scale battle. Um, encircle these forces, destroy the Soviet border armies, and then basically we have won the war. It's a question of driving on and seizing objectives. Now Hitler already at this point thought, well, after we've destroyed these forces in the central part of the front, we will divert them south into the Ukraine. That's to his mind where the the economic objectives were the obviously the oil and, and, and the raw materials of the Ukraine, uh, the food, all of this sort of stuff that, that, that he was very focused on. Um, and for Helder, it was clear he wanted to drive on to Moscow. And uh, I mean, it has to be said it was very much Helder. I mean, Raukic is there and, and there's a number of others who are um, in the army high command who are in this discussion, but but the force of personality is really Helder. Um, but the problem Helder has is if he wants to discuss this with, with, with Hitler, Hitler's given his uh, his opinion, this is very clear. And he doesn't hold these men in very high esteem, it has to be said, because of the, uh, the differences of opinion over the French campaign and the submissions of the OKH then, which Hitler didn't look favorably upon at all, and ended up dis- dismissing and going with Munchstein plan and all, all of this. Uh, he hadn't hadn't any real sense that Helder and Braukic uh, strategically were the people he wanted to go to or listen to as to how to conduct a campaign. Um, but they were functional. I mean, Helder had his function. He, he was a, a an organizer, you can say. And in that sense, you know, he was able to uh, serve on in that role. But it's interesting that he wasn't rewarded after the, 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 the French victory, um, as many senior commanders indeed were. Uh, so Helder, aware of this, is not going to push his luck and try and dispute this with Hitler, especially because it seems that once the campaign has reached its second phase, it's going to be basically over and it's not going to be a problem to push on to Moscow or to uh, convince Hitler of his wisdom at that point. The problem is, of course, once you get a month into the Barbarossa campaign, you've enacted the Battle of Smolensk, Smolensk it's, uh, sorry, of Minsk first and then followed by Smolensk, and you still haven't got a victory and you've still got a, a, a long Soviet front that's very aggressive and stocked with manpower and the German panzer groups um, are correspondingly weakened. It seems very clear that there's only one last shot. That's how a lot of these uh, discussions uh, are framed. We have one last major offensive in the East. What should that be? And then it becomes clear Helder wants to go to Moscow and Hitler wants to go down to uh, the Ukraine. And uh, as, as Hitler starts talking about these ideas, in fact, has war directives in this direction, 
um, is the point where Helder decides now I've got to confront him over it. And it, and it, and it's quite an explosion. One of the, I think it's, um, Heusinger who, uh, describes it as, uh, in one of his letters as, uh, it was like a bomb going off. Um, and, and that's very much how it is. There, there is a, a real strategic crisis. And because Army Group Center at this point is in this rest and, and refitting phase where no movement is taking place, there's a lot of time for this, this, conflict to go on and and held is not alone yodel in the okw so hitler's uh, wehrmacht command uh is very much on his side he wants to try and influence hitler in in the direction of moscow and a lot of the senior army commanders guderian hort bock they all want to go to moscow and they even monstein right i mean doesn't monstein come in at some point and try to use his leverage with hitler well no he's a core commander in army group uh center in the in the in panzer group uh, four and, uh, I mean, he may have expressed views later on to, in this, in this regard, but at, at this point he was a core commander and, and wasn't involved, but he, he, maybe he did. Uh, I can't recall. Um, uh, but he's certainly not in, in this discussion. The main discussion, I mean, when Hitler comes to army group center in early August, he is very much talking to Gadir and he's very much talking to Horton. He's talking to Bock. They're all of the same opinion. He talks to them actually individually because he doesn't want them all to, you know, sort of uh, back each other up. He talks to them individually and they've already all decided. In fact, uh, Helder goes so far as to talk to Rundstedt, the commander of Army Group uh, South, and to say, you have to support the Moscow option because, uh, of course, Rundstedt, it's in his interest to get Panzer Group 2 to divert south into the Ukraine and help him out. He's, his army group is not as big as Box. He's got a lot of, uh, he's got a very, very long front. He's uh, um, spread right through the, the Ukraine. Uh, there's still the, the siege at Odessa, which the Romanians are taking care of. He's got a lot on his plate. And uh, of course, it would be beneficial to have Army Group, oh, sorry, Panzer Group 2 to divert into the Ukraine. But Helder gets him uh, to support the Moscow option. So there's really a lot of uh, a lot of support for this, and Hitler is really having to argue against his his command, and 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 to no small extent he is. There's a lot of schools of thought on this, and I don't claim to project myself into Hitler's mind and know what he's thinking, but it, it, it seems like there's a lot of hesitation. He, he's not he's not sure at all what he should do, and uh, and he also has um, depends on who you read. If you read Kershaw, he has dysentery in in early, in, in mid August, and uh, I think Tom Tobias Yazak said he has uh, he had a nervous breakdown, but. Um, but clearly he's not in a, in a sound state of mind uh, in, in the middle part of August. Uh, he even talks in Goebbels' diary when he's talking to Goebbels about uh, whether or not the Soviets would accept the peace deal. I mean, I don't think that you'd have to take – we should read too much into that because as soon as he comes out of this, there's there's never any talk of this at all. Um, but he's, he's not a well man, it seems, for quite a part of August when he's not sure what he should do. And this, you know, extends this dispute. And then when it's finally decided, uh, that the, the Ukrainian option is, is, is the, the, the one, it, it's, it's not that simple. Um, you, you've got, so, you've engendered so much, uh, antipathy within the, the, uh, the command of the army. I mean, Helder is incredulous at what's going on in Bokers as well, not just because of, the fact that they, as the senior commanders, and this army, this campaign is supposed to be run by the OKH, you know, it's supposed to be the army command, and Hitler is, to their minds, interfering. But it's also the fact that uh, Guderian, the man who's going to have to run this campaign, has jumped ship, having been so so forcefully in favour of Moscow, and is indeed flown to Hitler's headquarters in order to convince Hitler of this, because Hitler, as Helder well knows, listens more to as he sees it, front commanders, real soldiers, than these desk generals like Helder, who doesn't have a very high standing in Hitler's eyes. And so they send Guderian there, and Guderian basically 180 and, and turns around and says, yes, we'll, we can do this and we will do this, and 
flies back and says, right, it's been decided we're going down to the set. And, and they can't believe this. And, th- and this leads on in, if you follow the, I mean, my book sort of stops there, but I have, I have a second book, which uh, Kiev 1941, which just came out this week. And, and if you follow that on, then Guderian and, and, and the problems he has with Army Group Center, based on this feeling of betrayal, uh, it, it extends right into the, the next phase of the, the whole uh, campaign. So there's an enormous amount that comes out of this in terms of the personal politics and in terms of the whole strategic debate and, and, and the dispute. And, and I think it, it, in its roots, to no small extent, it's, it's the fact that so many of these men are on the one hand, you know, they're under a lot of stress, but they didn't, they didn't know that they were ever going to be here. They're, they're going into this expecting this is going to be a walkover. I mean, if you've crushed France in, in six weeks uh, and Belgium and Holland and the British Expeditionary Force, and now you're facing the Red Army. The Red Army, uh, simply to their minds, is not going to be able to stand up to them. And they're not only standing up to them, it's causing them tremendous losses uh, that, that the German army is really suffering. I mean, I think the figure is 63,000 German soldiers killed in July alone. 63,000, uh, and that's not wounded and missing, that's just killed. This is a staggering war. And there, I think, also uh, coming to the conclusion, at least, if not the, the higher command, but certainly divisional commanders, corps commanders, they're seeing all of this going on and they're starting to get very concerned. But they're, they're sort of, they're, their hands are tied in a way because the, the ethos of the German military in, in World War II is, is one of, you know, the, 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 the primacy of will. You can do it no matter what you do. If you set yourself an objective, you just do it, especially in these panzer groups. This is the really, you know, driving on and, 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 and you know, sort of damn the torpedoes, full stream ahead, all this kind of idea, you know, just don't worry about the flanks, just keep going. And so for any of these commanders to then say, uh, you know what, I, I think we're in real trouble and I don't know if we can do this and I think we need to reassess what this is. This is not just a, I mean, some of the reports are saying exactly this, but to, to, to say it certainly to Hitler or to some of the highest commanders, um, it's seen to be, to no small extent, a loss of faith. Um, you're you're not of the the real iron, um, you know, I will make it happen type officer, which you need to be in these Panzer divisions. And a lot of these men start to crack. It's it's interesting to see that in in September. And I'm now working on a on a, on a third book in in October, looking at Operation Typhoon. And it's 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 interesting to see how 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 these these officers in this sort of medium area are really starting to crack under the pr- pressure. They'd sort of hoped that the statistics themselves would bear out what they've been thinking and sending up to higher command, and they're simply not seeing anything happen. In fact, they're seeing even as late as I'm working on October right now, and I'm and I'm seeing things coming down from the OKH to these armies saying uh, you, you'll have to advance two or three hundred kilometers to the east, and this is so far beyond what they're able to do. Um, and they're now starting to feel like, well, who's going to be the first one to say to Hitler or to say to Helder, uh, this is simply impossible. We are so far overextended. Our losses are so huge. Um, it cannot happen. Um, but that's, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's really where, where things end up, obviously, by November, December. The, and the losses, you make the point, are, are worsened by this, um, this kind of indec- indecisive phase where the Soviet Union has failed to collapse. Um, and, and so they're envisioning, they're, they're needing to dream up new offensives. Mm. So they're holding on to places. You spend a lot of time uh, talking about this salient at uh, Yel- Yelnya. Yeah. If I'm pronouncing that right, but they hold on to that and at great cost and, and great cost again to the Panzer divisions um, because they think that's going to be the stepping, you know, stepping off point for the next offensive. Um, and they Absolutely, you know, yeah. just sit there and take it. And it's, um, it's a pretty dismal prospect. Well, that's one of the things that's so interesting. I mean, you know, 
David Glance makes a lot out of this about forgotten battles on the Eastern Front, and and and, and there's no small number of them. You know, when I started this, I was sort of saying, you know, the scale of the Eastern Front is so huge, and, and it is. Uh, but part of that that idea of the scale being so huge is is, and I think this is the really in many ways the future of the historiography is that we are we are getting this big picture. We've always had this sort of big picture and we, we talk in these terms because we don't have any other language to talk about it. You know, what happened on the Eastern Front and how? what was the experience of the German soldier on the Eastern Front? But I think the future of the historiography is going to have to be an enormous amount more specialized studies because I think what we're going to find out is the experience of a, uh, a soldier fighting in the Ukraine is potentially very different from the experience of a soldier fighting in, you know, at Leningrad or somewhere else. And, and, uh, you know, obviously also between the various services, what was the experience of a man in the motorized infantry or the panzer division or the infantry or, you know, the, you know, the Luftwaffe, uh, you know, it's always going to be different. And, 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 and at the moment I'm, I'm very much where we don't have that. We, we really, we don't have that because, you know, if, if you look at this yell in the salient and, and, and the fighting that goes on there and just how, how vicious and how, uh, these, these forces are being literally rotated through the salient, you know, in the space of 10 days to, to two weeks because anything longer in there, they, they've, they've been bled white and they, they simply cannot serve as a fighting force any longer. They have to be taken out and, uh, and replaced by other units. And, and this is, you know, there's, there's no book on this. There's, there's nothing else to, to, to sort of look at. You just get this out of the, the archives. Um, but it makes you wonder when, when this is so intense and so many units go through this and this battle goes on for some weeks. And this is just one part of the front at this time. And, and by no means the only part or the most important part, the whole battle of Smolensk is taking place while this, uh, salient is, is, is being attacked from all sides. And, uh, you know, if you think about how many of these various spots along the, the front there must be with various divisions having their, their respective crises. You start to get an idea of, uh, uh, you know, the, the, this, the, the enormity of the war and the enormity of the problem that the Germans are facing. And that as the Panzer divisions get more and more weakened, the ability to actually uh, shore up any of these positions or deal with these crises, you know, is correspondingly affected. So, you know, uh, the one thing I always think, you know, PhD students are always looking around for, for various topics. And I, I'm sure every every person who's got a specialization says, oh, there's, there's questions to be answered in my area. But, but the nice thing about the Eastern Front and the thing I think you know, can be uh, really emphasized to a lot of um, students looking for for good topics is that you can still say something fairly macro about World War Two by looking at the Eastern Front because there are so many of these forgotten battles and battles of enormous importance, both both inherently or you know in terms of the implications for Germany or whichever part of their front. Um, that can be looked at and studied, and you can really be the first person to write it. I mean, the Kiev book that I've just done is a. Uh, I mean, that's literally the first book that's been written on the Battle of Kiev in 1941. And this is a battle where 665,000 German, uh, sorry, Soviet prisoners of war are taken. And uh, we're looking at the Soviet Southwestern Front being completely destroyed, you know, in excess of a million men. I think it's five armies that, are, that make up this. And, and there is no book on this. If you wanted to find out about the Battle of Kiev, you had to go to these, you know, books that are very good, but 1941 to 1945, the Eastern Front, or, you know, a book on 1941 per se. And even then you only get X number of pages. And this is, you know, it's, it's incredible to think a battle of this scale and of this importance to World War II. And especially when you're, you're familiar with the, the Anglo-American literature on so many aspects of the war in the West and you think how many books are there on D-Day? I mean, hundreds. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm sure there's a lot to learn. And I'm sure in 50 years there'll be people still finding out things. And, and that's, that's, that's great. But while we're looking at that, 
part of the war uh, in the West and, and saying, look, you know, there's so much mileage to be gained out of a lot of studies, then one has to, when one's more focused on, on the, the, the German war effort as a whole, one has to concede that we just don't know very much about the war in the East and that there's a, a real need for so much more to be known, not just about 1941, but pretty much all of the war. Indeed. So let's let's uh, step out. I mean, it's a it, the detail that you provide is impressive, and and as you you make the point, and I can put on my advisor hat for a second. You know, what makes a feasible dissertation is one thing, but what makes a, an impressive book then is to is to step outside that detail and to connect it as you as you were just doing to the to the larger war to the you know these big important questions. And there, are, I want to talk about the final solution too. But first, um, there's a really fascinating section on the attitude of Japan and how. These early, early battles in the Eastern Front are shaping the attitude of Japan toward the war, toward cooperation with the Germans. And, you, and it really helps you make your point because you say that, you know, the, the apparent German success at Smolensk actually sort of scares off the Japanese from participating in a war against the Soviet Union. Can you explain that dynamic? Yeah, sure. I mean, basically, in Japan, there's, a, there's two schools of thought in 1941. There's the... the the Imperial Navy, and they're looking at a southern solution. They want to strike into the Pacific and uh, and uh, secure um, raw materials, principally oil, uh, for the ongoing war that Japan is fighting since 1937 in, in China. And the Japanese army uh, are looking very much more at the Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, the, the, when Barbarossa takes place, the Japanese army feel like, well, our hand has been strengthened. This is This is now, you know this is the potential for us to walk in and uh, gain in a tremendous amount and not have to invest too much. But there's a, a real uh, focus on what's happening in uh, Operation Barbarossa. What are the Germans doing? And the, uh, the, I think it's the German military attaché, sorry, the Japanese military attaché, or it's the Japanese ambassador, I can't recall, but one of the two goes to uh, Box uh, uh, headquarters and is there during part of uh, the Battle of Smolensk. And is observing and is watching what's happening there. And uh, the sum total of all of this is in early August, his report is that the Eastern Front is not going to be ended anywhere near as fast as the Germans would have us believe. And uh, and in any case, the, the, I mean, this isn't the only factor that's influencing Japanese politics at this time. Um, but that the uh, the drive is 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 uh, very quickly decided in early August to be um, not against the Soviet Union. And there's a uh, a very clear. I mean, they haven't yet uh, conclusively decided that, that it's going to be the Southern Campaign, but the, the idea of an invasion of the Soviet Union um, is given up uh, from the Japanese. And I mean, they're not the only ones. If you look at the Hungarians, they've also participated in Barbarossa. Um, a few days afterwards, they they commit the Carpathian uh, Corps, uh, and uh, in, the idea is again, you know, that there's spoils in the Soviet Union spoils both for Hungary and in terms of, you know, the aggrandizement of, of Hungary, but also you don't want to lose favor with Hitler, especially when Hungarians rival, you know, their great rival was the Romanians and they're committing an enormous force. Uh, Ancinescu has a whole army group that he wants to drive in there. I think he's got two armies and, and so that they don't want to come off worse. They don't want to be seen to be the, to be less loyal in a sense in this, in this Axis alliance. But Again, by early August, it's uh, it's Hawley meeting with uh, Keitel and Hitler, and he's desperately trying to get his um, his Carpathian group out of Russia, and uh, and that's because his commander um, there, who's he's since promoted to be um, uh, his chief of staff, uh, was very 
clear that this war is not going to end well and it's not going to be a short, it's going to be a, a long attritional campaign. This is not what we signed up for and this is frankly not what we can do. And already I think it's by the end of August that uh, almost all of their motorized uh, transport for the Hungarian core has been uh, has been lost, something like 80% of it. Um, so that they're seeing very clearly uh, the effects of this, of this campaign for themselves but also on the Germans. And uh, and those who who are more loyal allies, you could say, like uh, Antonescu, who who drives in, takes back uh, Bessarabia, and and you know which the Soviets had taken in 1940, and and and, and liberates his own territory, uh, and then drives on in and, and very much a part of this campaign, and is and is quite happy to take on a major role, as in the uh, siege of Odessa. But then in the siege of Odessa, suffers almost a hundred thousand casualties. I mean, it's it's staggering just how many. Uh, losses the Romanians have, in, and and that's in uh, I think between the end of August and and uh, and the middle of October. So it's a, a very short period for an enormous number of casualties, and really guts the the, the, the Soviet uh, Fourth Army um, to the point where it has to be sent back and and, and reconstituted in in Romania. Um, so the, the the experience of the Allies is is of the, the German Allies is uh, um, is very contrasting, but basically all leading in the same direction that this war is is not going to go well. And I guess the other one we could mention is, is the Finns. I mean, they also commit an enormous amount to this. And again, at the end of the uh, the year, when they're asked for another offensive, um, the decision is basically no. We need to demobilize out. The economy of, of of Finland was collapsing because they'd put so many men uh, in the field. And they simply didn't have anyone to have. They were printing money to fund the war, and they were doing everything that they possibly could, but uh, but they couldn't sustain an army of uh, in excess of four hundred thousand men um, for a country of their size. And they also saw that this war is going to go on. But what could they do? Uh, they simply couldn't keep going forever into the Soviet Union, which is ultimately what Germany does to their uh, great detriment. And so I, I mentioned the final solution earlier. Uh, you you also connect the these campaigns and the 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 state of the German campaign in the East to the evolution of the final solution. Can you explain that connection as well? Well, I mean, it certainly is there. Um, and I'm a bit more coy about this just in the sense that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not really, uh, I mean, I'm certainly aware of the Holocaust, but I don't consider myself a Holocaust historian. And in any case, we're, you know, we're in a position with the Holocaust where, you know, there is no piece of paper that points to exactly when does the Holocaust start in the east there isn't you know a clear date on which uh, it's clear that all uh, women and children are being targeted um, certainly from the onset the Einsatzgruppen are part of the various invading armies and that they are driving in there and they have an, a mandate to kill communist functionaries and commissars and, and and so on and so forth but when that switches to being a uh, wholesale massacre of Soviet Jewry is is obviously still debated, and you know it's safe to say by the end of the summer this campaign has begun in earnest. Um, and you know, in, in that sense, I'm 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 a little bit coy about saying, well, it was exactly here or exactly there, because the paper trail, you know, it's it's easier in that sense for a military historian looking at you know Panzer divisions and things because there's an enormous amount of documentation. Whereas, of course, it's it's different with the the Holocaust. A lot of this was word of mouth, and and it's not to say that we can't we can't make conclusive statements, but uh, you know, because I I haven't spent uh, years looking at the Holocaust, I'm a bit more coy about it. But it, it's also you know I, I think that the best case for me and, and what I've read is is to say the end of August is the time I think when, I mean, just if you look at the, when, when the mass killings really begin, and I mean, when, when is it happening all over the Eastern Front? It's it's August. It's late August is when it really starts. Um, and 
and to my mind, I, I've often wondered if that isn't connected to to you know Hitler. We, we, we talked about it before him having he's not clear about what the what the you know the, the, the strategic solution is to this Eastern War. I think he's you know obviously sick for whatever is wrong with him, but he's probably also suffering to no small extent like some of these uh, commanders with wow this war is not what I thought it was going to be, and look at the losses and look what this is costing us, and and this is going to go on for a very sizable amount of time, and it's therefore. I think not too much to say that when he finally recovers his composure and is then very decisive and able to deal with this weight of opinion militarily to say, no, we're going down to the Ukraine. That's going to be the decision. I don't care. This is exactly the right decision and we are going to do it with this sort of iron will that he, that he you know, often exhibits. But at the same time, then when we see this, this sudden uh, killing of the, the Jews on such a vast scale, I wonder if that isn't also uh, sort of fitting the, the circumstantial evidence to say that is the period at which he's also decided um, that the Soviet Jewry is going to suffer for this. And, and again, in, in Goebbels' diary, when he visits Hitler in this period, um, there is a, a, a passage there where he says, um, he talks about the, the situation in the war, and, and, and then his, his comment is, uh, the Jews in the East must pay for this. Um, and for a man who takes his, his cue so, so much from Hitler, uh, I think it's not too much also to assume that Hitler's obviously discussed this with him. And if there has been a decision to kill uh, all Soviet Jews, um, this also fits with the timing. Uh, and that's exactly what starts to take place with, you know, not just the Einsatzgruppen, but the, these, the police and the uh, auxiliaries, even the Wehrmacht is, is, is very much involved in this, this process. And this, this is very much a war of annihilation. Um, and I wanted to have something like that in there because, you know, I, I think, um, you know, we've looked at a lot of books in the past that have been, you know, military histories of the Eastern Front, or if you look at German historiography, they tend to only deal with the War of Annihilation. And I don't think either is is, is wrong, but, um, you know, you just don't want to write a book on military history and not discuss what's gone on there. And, and you know, not being a researcher necessarily in the area, but I, I, my best guess is if I had to put a date to it, I say, you know, the end of August is when this is coming through. This is, you know, it's, it fits both with the strategic decision to to uh, provide a solution to Soviet resistance and also a racial uh, uh, solution to his problem, so to speak, problem in, in, in commas, um, uh, of, 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 of Bolshevism and, and Jewry, which he sees as his, his you know, his obviously his, uh, his ideological enemy and his racial enemy uh, in the East. So it's a solution in both senses. Right. And, and you trace this transformation from a war that, as you described in the beginning, at least was justified in terms of um, the need to knock Britain out of the war. In other words, de- denying Britain its last continental ally and that sort of thing mm. that um, eventually evolves into what, what Hitler had probably always envisioned it as in, in, in any case is uh, this racial war um, that's connected to the destruction of the Jews and so forth. So, Yeah, absolutely. There well, was a transformation, yeah. So it's a, that's, that's impressive. And one of the things that makes this book, so makes it a good book and not just a good dissertation, right? Is the, is the connection to these, to these broader issues. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're coming to the end of our time. So I would like, um, well, first of all, to thank you for this, uh, for spending so much time with me this morning. I hope uh, our listeners have, have gotten a good sense of uh, what this book is about and, and why it's, why it's definitely worth reading. And I, I did warn you that I'd like to, um, impose on my interviewees for recommendations for future installments of the new books in military history. Do you have any for me? Uh, I certainly do. Um, I, uh, I'm actually in the process of reading, I think I've got one or two chapters to go, uh, uh, Roger Reese's uh, Why Stalin's Soldiers Fought. And 
uh, I have to say it's a very good book. Um, but I think what's, what's particularly good about it. And uh, in some ways I've been reading it and thinking, gosh, I wish someone would write this for the Wehrmacht. There are books around this idea, but, uh, he seems to hone it very well. He's, he's really, he's really, I think, gotten at the, you know, the, as I said in the interview that, you know, we're trying to work out how does the Soviet army reconstitute itself? Now that's a, a sort of a functional question on one side, but it's also a question of, you know, when you've seen all these disasters, why do Soviet soldiers line up to do this again? And, and, and when it, it seems so often like they're going to be confronted with, uh, their mortality and, uh, and he does an excellent job of, of trying to, I think, provide a lot of explanations, which aren't the classical explanations. It isn't just this idea of, you know, German historiography of, of, of the, you know, they were all sort of mindless automatons and, 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 and sent into battle, you know, um, drunk with vodka. And, and it isn't the other idea that it's, uh, you know, the Soviet discipline and, 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 and ruthlessness that drives these men into doing this. There's, it's a, it's a, there's a lot more shades of gray in there. Um, and, and again, I also have this idea coming back to my my other point in the interview that I think probably the Red Army suffers in the same way from the Wehrmacht, that we need a lot more specialized studies because what might be true of one area won't be true of other areas and what might be true of 1941 may not be true of 1943. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of things to be said on it, but it's a, it's a very good book. The other thing I might just add though, because, uh, I'd also like to, you know, um, hear this myself, I guess is, um, uh, Stephen Fritz's, I, I haven't actually read it yet. I've only read the preface, but, uh, Oskrieg, his, uh, his new work, which, um, by all accounts, and I've spoken to one or two who have read it, uh, sounds like a fascinating book and, and is doing what I said, uh, we haven't tended to do, which is, um, you know, it's a synthesis between this idea of the war of annihilation in the East and, and looking at what's been written on that and, and so much historiography, uh, and on the other side, the military campaign, uh, and it's uh, taking on a huge area. I mean, it's, it's really running through the whole war which is uh, an ambitious undertaking when you, one considers just uh, how much there is in, 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 you know, I'm noticing that myself working on 1941 and, and finding that each time I go to write something, I, I, my Kiev 41 book was supposed to be about the autumn of 41 and I only got as far as the end of September and realized, okay, that's already a book. So uh, it's, uh, it's a big war. But, uh, yeah, I think those are definitely um, books that uh, I'd like to – well, I, I recommend the first one. I haven't read the second one, so I won't go that far, but uh, it would certainly be interesting to hear about it. About it. And because of his earlier work, the French Soldaten book, maybe, yeah. maybe it answers some of those questions about the German army that, that, um, that Reese does about the Soviet. Absolutely. He's definitely got the, that's the other thing. I think that's, that's, you know, it excites me. If it was anyone else writing it, I might think, well, well, someone who hasn't written anything else, you might, well, wait and see. But, uh, but his other works have been so strong that it, it, it really, it really makes you think he's got a good grounding for, uh, for, for taking on such a big topic. So definitely. Well, I can, I can, I can ask another question, which is why, if, uh, if the war is, is over in August of 1941, if the Germans have lost, why, why write a book yeah. about September of 1941? And, and what are you going to do with 1942? Well, I mean, I'll be honest with you. I, I had a bit of flack for, you know, some of the people that say, I don't agree with this 1941. I mean, I think it's, my idea is that Germany hasn't necessarily lost the war. Clearly the war goes on for a lot longer. The, 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 the only point I'm making there is if Germany cannot win the war, if they cannot destroy the Soviet Union, they are locked into a long, you know, attritional war that's, that's going to go on for very long. And they are not going to be better placed to do this in the summer of 42 than they are in, in 1941. But it's not to say that the war is, you know, that I'm trying to predetermine anything. I, I, I think that with, with the way things stand in 1941, Germany is in desperate trouble already at this point, if you look at the economic factors and things. But I think that's one thing about Barbarossa and my Barbarossa book that I would say, I mean, this was, at the end of the day, it was a, a PhD dissertation. So, there are certain constraints. You can't talk about the German war economy in great depth. You've got to stay on focus and you've got to be, you know, talking about your operations and, and looking at that. And, and it's one of the nice things about the Kiev book to answer your question was, 
you know, I thought a bit more freedom there. I thought my first two chapters can be thematic. I, I can go off and talk about other things. And I, and I really wanted to try and contextualize not just Kiev and the battle there, but, but indeed German operations in the East. And, and that's what I do. And one of the, the, the chapters I'm talking a lot about the German war economy and how does that, how is that structured and why does it matter what's happening on the Eastern Front for this idea that Germany and their uh, ability to win this war by the by the, the, the strategic focus that they had, which was always these short, sharp wars, and in a sense seizing um, uh, resources that he couldn't um, domestically produce, um, and this was going to be the great heist of his of his career, taking the Soviet Union and being able to basically become autarkic and 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 you know have oil and have magnesium and, and copper and tin and everything else he could ever possibly need because he's in the grip of a of a of the, the British blockade, which hasn't had so much effect because the Soviets have been sending it to them under the, the Nazi Soviet trade agreement. But um but once that's over and he didn't see that lasting even without Barbarossa, he didn't see that lasting, then it wouldn't matter because he would have Lebensraum, he would have uh, control of these resources and therefore he would be able to go on and fight if it is going to be a long war against Britain, which I think he had concluded in 1940, it wasn't going to be a short war. Um, uh, he was going to have the resources to do it. So, you know, basically it all sort of comes together. But that's, and I think it's, as a, as a scholar, I mean, I've noticed with the Kiev book, I've also sort of grown that much further with the whole thing and, 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 and seen just how much, um, uh, you know, there is to, to, to learn it and, and, and as I say, a lot of the strategic debates that were going on in, in the first book are carrying over in, in September. And this war will continue. But maybe one last point I will add is, uh, you know, in order to destroy the Soviet Union or in order to destroy Nazi Germany, one sees again and again just how much effort that will require. Because not only after all of these grand uh, offensives of 1941 and, and, and campaigns at Kiev and then later on, of course, in Typhoon. And the Soviet Union is still reconstituting their front. But even in 1943, when the Soviets are on the attack and Germany is, is, is so much weaker um, militarily, it still takes two years of sustained offensives to really destroy either one of these two very, very large empires. Um, you know, it takes an, an enormous amount. And uh, I think that's just underlined very much in the 1941 and 43-45 uh, campaigns. When you said the Kiev book is out now, so uh, yeah, out just now. Uh, apparently it just came out this week. So okay, well, uh, we'll look forward to that. But don't sell this one short. It's a uh, it's a very good book. So good. Thanks, thanks again for being with me. Thanks very much for having me, Jay. That's it for now. You've been listening to my interview with David Stahl, the author of Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East, as well as the more recent uh, Battle of Kiev, also with Cambridge University Press. I hope you'll have a chance to read both of them.